Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! So this week we are discussing not the new Persuasion that was just released on Netflix, but the 2007 adaptation, which stars Sally Hawkins as Lovelorn Spinster Anne Elliot and Rupert Penry Jones as her one-time fiancé Frederick Wentworth. After eight years apart, they're reunited when his sister's family rents Anne's estate, and things get more complicated from there. So this was a Patreon request from Daniel. Thank you so much to Daniel for requesting this. We got a really lovely message with some pointers for our discussion, so we'll be getting to those topics. And I'm sure that Daniel had this on the brain because of the new release, but we got this request uh, a while before the new film came out, and it's now just like extra schadenfreude because the new one is so awful. If you would like to hear our thoughts on that, we have a bonus episode on that film on Patreon. Um, and by our thoughts, I mean my thoughts, because Gavia smartly did not watch it, because it sucks. Yeah, I had no obligation to watch that film, and as someone who has not read the novel yet, um, I did not want my first experience to be watching, famously, the worst movie, so... <laughs> Yes, very smart choice. I had seen this film that we were talking about today five plus years ago, maybe, when I read Persuasion for the first time. I'd only read it once before this summer. I just listened to the audiobook read by Juliet Stevenson, which was wonderful. So this is one of the Austins that I'm not quite as familiar with, but sort of re-immersing myself in the book was really pleasurable, unlike, say, watching the new movie, which again, was very bad. And I think this adaptation is really interesting. I think it does some stuff not so well. I gave it like three out of five stars, I would say. Totally enjoyable movie, has some flaws. But the stuff they're kind of doing and thinking about in terms of the book is very interesting, as opposed to the new one, which is just like, again, bad. We're not going to do this the whole time. I'm not going to say every single statement and they'd be like, also, the new movie's bad. But it was hard not to think about it while watching it because it was just such a different approach. But... I will start with a little bit of a sort of primer on the novel if people have not read it. I would be so curious to know like how much this book gets read now. Obviously, all of Austin's books are popular compared to other books that were written in the early 19th slash late 18th centuries. But um, to me, like Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, and Emma are like the three big ones. But I know that a lot of people consider Persuasion her best novel and really, really love it. Like I would say that from my outsider perspective, Persuasion has enough of a pop culture impact. There are multiple fanfics that are Persuasion AUs and other fandoms, which I have come across over the years. So it's percolated enough through people's minds to have that level of status. Well, it also has a very, I mean, the novel's not simple at all. It's actually, like, as a piece of literature, very complex, but, like, I would as say. as a romance novel structure, yes. the relationship has something that you can grab onto very easily. Yes, which is that these people were supposed to get married. It didn't work out. In the novel, it's because um, this young woman, the protagonist, Anne, was persuaded haha, um, against marrying this guy because he sort of wasn't high enough status and didn't have enough money. And then they you sort of meet again many years later. And then that's when the book takes place. And they have this sort of intense, like not quite courtship, because that's not what's happening. But they're having these sort of momentary interactions that they're are very brought together by fate. Yes. And that's obviously an amazing sort of romance plot that has been reused many, many times in the years since. 
either in a very direct way, like some people doing like an, a persuasion adaptation and then making it modern, or just in a sort of looser, like, oh, there's a bit of inspiration from this that you can see if you're thinking about it, but it's not as directly textual. I mean, in many ways, it's a comedy of remarriage, right? Which is something that we've talked about before in terms of like the screwballs from the 1940s, which I really love. But the tone of the book is very different. It's quite serious. It's still funny, like all of Austen's writing, but it's definitely the least funny of all of her books. And the tone is much more sort of melancholy and self-reflective. Anne is 27 in the book, which at the time was considered quite old to be single. So the characters are all kind of acting as though it's assumed that she's not going to get married. And a lot of the book is internal in terms of like what she's thinking and feeling about things. I am not positive that you don't get anyone else's perspective at any point in the book, but if you do, it's pretty limited. It's mostly from Anne's point of view. Whereas some other Austen novels, she'll kind of flip back and forth between like the different characters' perspectives, even if the female protagonist is kind of like the main person. And I also just reread Pride and Prejudice, and that novel is almost exclusively dialogue. There is important internal stuff happening, but it's really like there are books written by two different people almost. This one is considered really quite modern and was like heavily influential on Virginia Woolf and Pride and Prejudice. Like I listened to it and it was so much fun to listen to because it really is almost like watching a movie just with your ears <laughs> because it's so much just people talking. So I think that that one is kind of the easiest one to adapt, which makes the fact that the adaptations are so beloved make sense, right? Because it is so cinematic Whereas Persuasion and Emma are really internal, and I think that that makes adaptations of them pretty tough. But in terms of the background for the novel, this is her last completed book. She wrote the novel between 1815 and 1816, and then completed her revisions less than a month later, according to an article I read on Mental Floss. And then she died the next year and hadn't sort of submitted the book to publishers or titled it yet. Um, so one of her siblings presumably titled it. And then... It was published like late in the year that she died, along with Northanger Abbey, which had not been published. And she hadn't been like a public figure per se, but it was common knowledge that the same person had written all of these books. And I believe it was common knowledge that it was a woman. And then she became a public figure after her death, I think is the timeline. The sort of commonly agreed upon inspiration for a lot of this book, which heavily features the Navy, is that she had to brothers who were in the Navy. Um, and she was quite close to her family, which I had sort of forgotten when I was looking at this and thought that that was pretty interesting. But I often think it's a bit of a fool's errand to think too much about her biography because we don't know that much about her. Yeah, I also think that it's like there's always a lot of obsessive, just people getting really fixated on her love life or that lack thereof. And like, oh, was this like based on this certain experience of hers? And that kind of analysis, like both from a historical perspective, when you don't know very much about someone, I immediately find suspicious. But also it's just really sexist because there's always this assumption that women are always writing about something that is purely their own experience. And obviously if you're writing something that is a true life drama or social satire, that kind of invites that more. But um, yeah, that does irritate me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what you do see in her books is she writes like this is the oldest character she wrote about and it's the one that she wrote when she was the oldest of course she died when she was 41 yeah. and so that feeling of being older and single i'm sure comes partially from her personal yeah. experience but her family was very intent on destroying a lot of her correspondence they burned most of her letters so 
there are certain things we, of course, know about her biography, but it's just hard to know too much, which I think is, I mean, it's too bad in many ways, of course, it would be amazing to read those letters, but there's a way in which it's kind of this wonderful mystery that, like, we just have these masterpieces by this woman, and then it's like, well, like, who really knows? But when the book came out, there was, I saw, found one quote from a review that was quite funny, poo-pooing the morality of the book, suggesting that... (laughs) (laughs) Basically suggesting that, like, the idea that people should marry for love is, like, really childish and absurd. So this is from the British critic, which writes, Persuasion contains parts of very great merit. Among them, however, we certainly should not number its moral, which seems to be that young people should always marry according to their own inclinations and upon their own judgment. It's like, well, yes, that is what she's saying. It's also like, uh, that's kind of the theme of uh, every romance novel. (laughs) Well, I mean, the romance novel didn't really exist as a genre at this point, but... um, but Very she was out amazing. there publishing anonymously uh, to avoid being scandalous, I assume. Oh, all reviews were published anonymously. No, time. no, the writer, Jane, Jane Austen. Yeah, I mean, most women authors did, I think. I'm yeah. trying to remember whether Fanny Burney was anonymous. I mean, she was definitely famous. Because I've definitely read some books that are just credited to, you know, like a gentlewoman, <laughs> which I yeah. think yeah. was kind of, I don't remember exactly what appellation Jane Austen had, but, you know, by anonymous. Yes, I think she often was credited as, like, by the author of Pride and Prejudice. Oh, yeah, of course. But, yeah, as I said, I'm not actually sure. This would be very easy to find out. So if you're curious, I'm sure you can just Google. But, um, like, how public her identity was at the time of her death. After she died, everyone knew absolutely who she was. But um, I know a bit more about, like, by the time the Victorian female writers were writing, it was definitely less of a secret. So, like, yeah, George Eliot published by George Eliot, but her identity was revealed almost instantaneously, and then she just kept going, and it was fine. But of course, this is like 60, 70 years earlier, so this it's a little bit more, you know, shocking for a woman to be writing about this stuff. So I have some also some information from a book that was written about her in the late 19th century that's pretty interesting, but I think I'll interpolate that while we're talking about the plot and the movie. But sort of point being that by 1889, which of course is quite a ways after her death, there is this major study being written of her by a female critic that talks about her like a complete like god of literature, basically. So her canonization happens relatively quickly, I think. Which makes sense, because there just wasn't anything like this. I mean, there were certainly other people writing sort of romances in, in this era, but they just weren't as good like there's a reason that we still read these ones but let's get a bit into this adaptation so i'm curious what your reaction was to it as someone who's not as familiar with the novel as you said the sort of basic story trope is very familiar to us but you haven't read the book so yeah i mean i obviously wasn't entirely unspoiled in terms of the themes because i just listened to you talk about it for an hour and hour you know your takedown of the 2022 version but yeah i mean i really like this this was it was like very clearly of a specific type of british tv adaptation this was part of three austin adaptations that were made in 2007 for itv so it's not really on the scale of a kind of cinematic movie. I know in the mid-90s, there were several very high-profile Austin adaptations. 
including the Pride and Prejudice miniseries, which are considered to be extremely definitive. And this is more in the vein of something that just happens every 10 years or so on British television, where they get whoever is currently a really popular actress. Like one of the others this year starred Billy Piper and the third starred Felicity Jones. So you've got like a trio of um, fairly obvious choices there. But yeah, I enjoyed this. I have to say, Sally Hawkins, absolutely adore her. I thought she was fantastic. Rupert Penry Jones, I think after watching this, I texted you to say that he was present. (laughs) He was certainly in the film. I would not say he was giving a particularly vibrant or personality-filled performance. I obviously have a great deal of affection for him in Black Sails because he plays one of the most emotionally affecting romantic leads. But partly that show kind of has this unique capacity to bring career best performances out of their actors. And partly his role was like extremely well written specifically to be a tragic romance figure. Whereas in this, I think maybe also just the film itself wasn't super interested in fleshing him out, which in some ways is refreshing from the perspective of him being like a a male lead. Uh, He barely is, but it was kind of interesting to compare the scenes they had because obviously the vast majority of it is from is from Anne Elliot's perspective. And it kind of starts off in this just like extremely well-observed and quite mournful tone where she is just surrounded by shit relatives and has one friend and has no control over her life. And I felt that it did a pretty good job of kind of illustrating the position she's in in a way that kind of makes it clear to audiences who aren't really super familiar with like the economic and social background of this period while also not being too explainy. So it's like her father who is played by Anthony Head in a wonderfully hateable performance which he recently basically did exactly the same thing in season two of Bridgerton (laughs) I realized I was like wow he's he just did this again 20 years later but um yeah like she's basically kind of doing all the management of her family's estate which her father has like frittered away a bunch of money so she's kind of selling off all the family stuff and getting ready to rent this house out and meanwhile her father's just this asshole and he's being really snobbish because they're going to rent the house out to an admiral instead of a member of the aristocracy so it's like classic the top tier of British snobbery but you also just get this look into She just has no control of her life. She has no freedom. She has no personal wealth. And then when you see the stuff that's from Wentworth's perspective, you only really get a couple of scenes where it's him by himself because like he's introduced kind of one third into the film after we've got this set up. And he's come back from, you know, serving overseas and he's now really rich and successful and he's palling around with a couple of other naval captains. And, um, you know, obviously he has a lot more freedom and now he's come back to England to find a wife, essentially. And the conversations he has with his friends are practically just exposition, you know? It's like they're just having really straightforward explanations of where they're at. And, like, at one point, he has to have, like, just a social conflict explained to him in really obvious terms. And I was just like, the subtlety has really gone out the window in scenes where it's just Wentworth and another guy. Well, you'll be shocked to hear that all of those scenes were added for the film. (laughs) Because as I said, it's basically all from Anne's point of view, the book. I think because I was listening to it and not reading it, I don't have quite as strong a grasp on that. But again, effectively, she is the point of view character. And certainly you're not getting Wentworth alone because the book is all about her not being quite sure of where he stands and what he's thinking. And I think one of the issues with the movie is that they don't sustain that right so like 
I mean, obviously, as the reader, you know they're going to get up, end up together. Like, it's fine. But the sort of delicious uncertainty is a lot of what is propelling the novel. And they clearly felt like they had to explain some stuff here, which, again, I totally understand because I think this is practically an unadaptable book because it is so completely inside her head. We talked about this when we talked about Emma also. Like, I just think it's really, really tough. But then, like, the scenes that they added are literally just people explaining things to each other. I was like, mm. But I totally share your view of the performances, which I remember thinking the first time I saw this, too, which is that she is just, like, luminous and transcendent. I just love her. And I think this is... I mean, there's plenty of stuff that she's done that I haven't seen, and I'm sure she's marvelous in all of it. So I hesitate to say, like, this is one of her best performances because they're all so good. Yes. <laughs> but I think she's just completely perfect for this character. Like, she can play quite big characters, too, but she's really, really wonderful at playing someone who is having a lot of emotion but can't express it so much, which is sort of like the definitive thing about Anne Elliot. And um, I also just think her physicality is really perfect for this role. And the way they've shot her emphasizes that. Like, Sally Hawkins is tiny. She's a tiny, tiny woman. And she looks really short <laughs> and tiny in this movie. And, like, most film actors are pretty short. And you don't always get that sense watching them, because that's just not what Either they're deliberately hiding that, or it's just not what the film is prioritizing. And you just kind of get the sense of her being quite diminutive, which doesn't have any effect on her personality or, like, the feelings that she's having, but the sense of her kind of being buffeted around yeah. by these external I forces. I mean, she's very mousy, and that's done really well in both the costuming and kind of the way they choreograph the scenes in terms of blocking, because... The whole setup for this is obviously that she is essentially entering spinsterhood. There's characters openly remarking on the idea that she is just never going to get married. And when Wentworth comes back, um, she's with this family who includes like two young daughters who are, you know, late teens and of perfect marriageable age. And this feels like quite different from most Austen and sort of Regency adaptations that you see around because most of them you know, they really like to enjoy the costume elements and the liveliness of their protagonists. And at the beginning of this movie, there's this really great juxtaposition between these two teenage girls who are really likable and sprightly, but just feel really childish. And they're wearing these lovely white gowns and they look like this sort of absolute, almost like caricature of that type of girl that you get in these stories. And then they're like running around in fields and, you know, just full of energy. And then Anne has almost been like consigned to old age already because she's walking really slowly. And I mean, she's always at the back of the group because she is kind of self-sacrificially allowing herself to be left behind so the girls have a chance to, you know, be courted by the men. And also she's been put in this position of nursing this unbearable relative who's just this like incredibly annoying woman who's malingering over having various potentially real potentially fake illnesses um, and is also just like in terms of personality very irritating so it kind of feels like she's just like surrendered to a life of drudgery even though she's not like depressed and giving up she still really comes across as a really good person because like she is actually you know doing her duty uh, as, as they'd put it but then like when you get into the second half and she realizes that she has more of a chance to actually like do something for herself 
it really feels very effective for her to have scenes where she's like physically running because you feel the sense of urgency after she's just been plodding around and looking so small and lacking in energy in the first section. I, I do not like the running as much as, as you do. <laughs> I'm not a fan of the running. But I agree that like her physical performance tells you so much about her state of mind. And then also, obviously, just like her face conveys so much about what she's thinking without her having to say that much. Like, I don't think she actually has a ton of dialogue in this no, movie. No, I mean, there's actually, there's like quite a few scenes where there's her voiceover doing her diary, but like a lot of the time she's literally just observing what other people are doing and saying, or there's loads of scenes where people are talking over her because she's surrounded by these really strong personalities and kind of in classic Austin style, it's just observations of people being unbearable in posh social situations. Yeah, she's. I just think she's really incredible in this movie. And for people who aren't as familiar with her career, basically before this, she had done a miniseries adaptation of the novel Fingersmith in 2005. She also had done three movies with Mike Lee, All or Nothing, Vera Drake, and then the year after that, this was her big breakout in Happy Go Lucky, so it was 2008, which she... Got won the Golden Globe for and then just missed out on an Oscar nomination, which was like a scandal at the time. I was outraged. I was really mad. <laughs> Watching this really made me want to rewatch that movie, which I haven't seen since then, and is just like tremendous. Um, and she's done tons and tons of work since, but the high points, I think it's pretty clear to say, are The Shape of Water, of course, which won all those Oscars, not for her, but she was nominated, and then being the mom in both of the Paddington <laughs> Yes. films. She's done a lot of films where she's sort of like a quirky supporting role because that is her niche, but she is also a completely wonderful actress, so you know. Yes. Also, I mean, she plays a lot of quirky characters, but I was looking at her Wikipedia page and her parents were children's book illustrators, or maybe Yeah, I mean, she's sure. got a particular zone, and I would never badmouth Paddington and Paddington 2, which are two of the best movies ever made, so yeah. you know. And like, I'm just gonna read this sentence out. Stunning stuff. Hawkins grew up in Blackheath in a National Trust-protected gingerbread house designed by Patrick Gwynn. Like, who is this woman? I just... <laughs> incredible. Incredible. But yeah, I, I adore her. I think she's completely wonderful. Rupert Henry Jones, stunningly bad, in my opinion, in this movie. Like, it's not that he's doing anything active that's like, oh, wow, that line reading was horrific. It's that there is just nothing in his I face. mean, <laughs> there's Zero. a quote from him. So, like, at this point, he was known for the TV show Spooks, which I never watched because I did not have access to a television when it was on air, but it was a very successful, you know, spy show in the UK. And he basically just said, like, he'd never done a historical drama before. And he was like... In modern drama, everything is so overt. In period drama, it's all held in. You have to find ways to show the feelings straining beneath the surface. And I was like, honey, <laughs> you've not done that. <laughs> I mean, Godspeed to him. Sure, he's a lovely man. But like, you literally, like, I watch his face in this and I'm just like, I don't think he's thinking or feeling anything. Like, <laughs> I just never was thinking of him. You know, I was so invested in the story because like, I love anguish and when people are torn asunder and are trying to get back together and they, they illustrate that very well because you're completely immersed in Sally Hawkins's role but with him I was kind of like what are his traits and also they hadn't like I would have also quite liked some more naval stuff but I do realize that naval stuff is not the focus of this type of uh, drama <laughs> yeah well 
one of the questions we had from this request was about the naval stuff, actually. But um, before we do that, I want to read a quote from this book from 1889 about Anne, which I think sort of speaks to the quality of the Hawkins performance and then also gets to the Wentworth performance just like not being there. So this author, who is named Sarah Fanny Malden, writes... The heroine has a sort of subdued charm about her. She makes no brilliant speeches and exhibits no special gifts, but from first to last, we feel that with Anne Elliot, we are in the presence of a high-bred, gracious, charming woman, and nothing better could be said of Captain Wentworth than that he is worthy of her. Which I think is quite lovely. I mean, obviously, in the year 2022, we don't really care so much about being high-bred, but like, she conveys the correct sentiment. And I think it's a really tricky role because all of that is conveyed through her internal monologue in the book. And Hawkins somehow manages to sort of translate that into a performance. And it kind of is like, well, Captain Wentworth is just there to, like, be the person who marries this woman. And he also is, like, way less prominent than, for instance, Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice. But it's almost like you you then really need a good actor to just, like, have the energy and Well, this makes right? me very curious about the mid-90s one, right? Because yeah. the one in 1995 is, I think, the most highly regarded adaptation, and that stars Kieran Hines, who I love, and Amanda Root, about whom I know very little, a character actress, but, like, I do know they had her wear absolutely no makeup in that, like, not no makeup, no makeup, but, like, actually no makeup. So she looks like a sort of average woman in her early 30s, which is unheard of, and Kieran Hines who is, is very interesting looking, but like he's also like not super handsome, which is just something that doesn't happen anymore. Um, you don't really get romances that are between two people who are kind of average looking, but he is an extremely powerful screen presence and I can really see how that worked. He also did a Jane Eyre movie. Um, so he was really in that zone at that period. I love Kieran Hines. <laughs> he was doing it all. Yeah. Well, that was something I was thinking about I was thinking about that as well, about this other movie that I wish we had seen, but maybe we'll do an episode about it in like six years and be like, remember Persuasion? We're going to talk about this version now. I mean, I'm pretty sure that the 90s Persuasion was kind of the first Austin adaptation that had the sort of grimy aesthetic. Because like the one that really is known as the influential one is the Keira Knightley Pride and Prejudice, which has like, a it so departs from the uh, classic Austin appearance that is very controversial, which we will discuss in a later episode. But um, yeah, I think like the point of the, the 90s persuasion is that because it's like one of the more serious books, they were like, let's make this real and gritty. And I think... That then casting someone like Kieran Hines, who again is like the most magnetic actor you could possibly find, but is kind of just like a weird looking dude, really works with that. Whereas like Rupert Henry Jones, I remember really thinking this the first time I watched this, I was just like, he's just not handsome. He's just not handsome. And like, obviously, he's a perfectly nice looking man, but he's not like luminously beautiful. And he's the sort of person who like, if he's charismatic, you'd be like, my God this is the hottest man. But because he has no charisma in this part, I'm just like, who is this guy? Like, why is she so hung up on him? He is a good looking guy, but it's like, because there's not much energy to this role, you know? But one of the things that uh, Daniel pointed out in this message we got was about the costuming. Um, I feel like we should talk a bit more about the costumes. You have mentioned some stuff, but you are, of course, a costume expert. And I have been doing some reading about this period, more about the hair, which I think we should also mention. But um, apparently in the or sort of 
other persuasion adaptations, they don't do this so much in the new one, I think, either. The naval uniform thing is, like, a big deal. So I think, like, all the pictures I've seen of Kieran Hines in that 1995 version, like, he is wearing a naval uniform. And they don't do that at all in this film, which I think is interesting. You really get a pretty minimal sense of the naval stuff in general. Like, it's part of the yeah, movie. Yeah, it's but- very off-speed. And, like, I wasn't really thinking about that from a costuming perspective, but, like, as soon as you pointed that out, like, it does feel strange because... You know, they were at war. They're literally talking about like, oh, he's got all this Spanish gold, you know, all this plunder. And I think people would be wearing their their uniform a lot, like for formal events and dinners. Like you wouldn't be out hiking in it. But I think if you invite an admiral and a bunch of handsome young captains to dinner, I think they're kind of expected to wear their shiny buttoned outfits. But possibly the people making the movie were just like, we want this to look more like a typical Austin adaptation. Yeah. I mean, it's no harder to rent a naval uniform from Angel's Costumers in London than uh, the other Regency outfits. God knows they've got fucking racks of those for every one of these BBC ITV productions. <laughs> I know. I, it's always so funny. Like, once you know that stuff gets reused, it's really hard to unsee that. Like, in the new <laughs> Persuasion, the Lady Russell character wears one of Abby Cornish's dresses from Bright Star. And those are distinctive. There are a few, yeah. I mean, there's a great Tumblr that I follow that just, like, tracks. I think it's called, like, Recycled Movie Costumes or something. And, like, British historical dramas, that shit never dies. It always comes back. <laughs> I mean, great. Recycle clothes. I think that that is great for the environment, great for everyone, and fun for us to be like, yes, I, I see that. I mean, in general, I think a lot of the women's costumes in this look a little bit like they're in a TV movie, which they are. So I think that that's fine. I liked the Sally Hawkins stuff a lot. I couldn't tell how accurate all of it was. Like some of the collars definitely looked wrong to me, but I liked like more of the sort of folded down collars. I was like, I don't think they had those as much, but I loved the texture in her outfits. Like you get a real sense of the sort of fabric actually having weight and it looks like someone actually made it, whether or not that's true. I thought that that worked really well. And again, gives you the sense, as you were saying earlier, of her not quite being like a la mode, right? Like she's kind of dressed a little yeah. bit frumpily, but in a way that's somehow more appealing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's going to all these dinners where the whole point of the dinner is to introduce eligible young people to each other to get married. And you can really see that the other girls are like very glam and have put loads of effort into their appearance. And she like truly doesn't give a shit. And and it's kind of this part of this thing where she's like, she's given up. It's kind of self-flagellation, but also she's just sunk into this spinster role. And she doesn't get a makeover at the end. She's just really happy at the end when she gets her happy ending. But, um, I did like that. And it was also kind of like her appearance is completely irrelevant to the romance in a way that like really isn't the case for a lot of Regency movies, because like, obviously there are ways to shoot these outfits that are like very sexy and beautiful and fun. And in this, they're like, we're not interested in that. Sally Hawkins is just going to be mildly frumpy and you're all emotionally invested. One thing I will say that I have never seen to my recollection and Bridgerton should do, but their costuming is so completely ahistorical and absurd that they're never going to. Um, FYI, there's a lot of interviews with the cast of Bridgerton talking about how they're like in agony all the time because of their corsets. And it's like, you shouldn't be in agony all the time. It should be like wearing a bra. Yep. <laughs> like yep. this was one of the comfier ears. <laughs> uh, but yeah, 
what I was actually going to say before I digressed is that um, one of the things that like you can do for this period is there was like a trend during the Regency for wearing dresses that were basically transparent, like white dresses. And at a party, you would get so sweaty from all the dancing that it would stick to you. So it would, it would be like a really sexy, racy outfit for the people who were sexy and racy. And as far as I know, no movie has done that. But like, they should be. It seems so obvious as a Bridgerton choice. I mean, I don't watch that show, but that yeah. seems like a clear thing. Yeah, Bridgerton is do. not bothering with anything that authentic. They're using different <laughs> types of sexiness that do not work correctly with those historical costumes. Yes, yes. There's also the hair question, which is something I've been spending a lot of time thinking about because I had to write about it for work. Well, I mean, I suggested this topic because it's one yes, of my you, you passions. A, a well-informed and researched sourced rant on why the 2022 persuasion here is bad. <laughs> Correct. So the hair in this is a million times better. I was just like peacefully just like ah yes every time someone those sort of like tight buns with the baby hairs sort of curled into a ringlet at the front with an iron it's quite something yeah they're not as tight corkscrews as in the recent emma but possibly more realistic because they're not as well done yeah it's like i just don't think that Anne elliot is spending as much time as emma no correct but one thing that stuck out to me which also is in the new persuasion and in that emma and I feel like basically most films set in this period is that basically the characters who are you're supposed to dislike female characters have way more elaborate hairdos. Yes. yes. Right. And I think it is excusable in this movie because everything you were just saying about Anne as someone who's kind of just like given up and like doesn't care so much anymore would by extension translate to the way she presents herself, right? Like it makes sense as a character decision for her to be a bit frumpy, but it was really egregious as well in the new persuasion where like Dakota Johnson is wandering around with her like long hair, just like tossing in the breeze and everyone else has these. I mean, it's the, the quintessential. I'm not like other girls, which in Dakota Johnson's case is absurd because she's extremely beautiful and also is visibly wearing a full face of makeup, you know? Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, like all these movies where it's like, you've got like the mean girls, bitches who are like the ugly stepsisters because they're not as naturally beautiful, but they're doing all this effort into their appearance. It's like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> yeah. And like, I was really impressed with the, the hair on the other woman in this too. Like they do, I can't remember what they're called, but basically when you would have like a bow of like greased, like shellacked hair yes. <laughs> on the top of your head. So you get that or like people would have, that's actually would happen a bit later than when this book slash movie takes place, but I'm willing to forgive it. And then also people had lots of just, like, ornamentation in their hair around this time. So in Emma, it's, like, the curate's wife whom he marries who has this, like, outrageous stuff going on in her hair. And even in the 2011 Jane Eyre, like, it makes sense that Jane wouldn't have a particularly elaborate hairdo because she's poor. But, like, the Sally Hawkins character who was in that, she plays her stepmother and is in a couple of scenes – has, again, the, like, shellacked bow hair thing, which, like, we interpret as really unfashionable and ugly, but it wasn't unfashionable at the time, right? And so, like, I think that movie is basically perfect. I love that film. And I think this movie does the sort of hair and beauty stuff really well for the most part. 
But it is always interesting to see sort of like how that stuff gets interpreted through a modern lens, right? And how our codes for what is like beautiful or tasteful intersect or don't with the past. And then the beauty stuff. For this article, I talked to this hair and beauty historian, Rachel Gibson, who was fantastic. Um, so you can read more from her in that piece, which I will link to. But we were talking a bit about makeup in these movies, too. And this one was definitely not an egregious case. The new persuasion was completely out of control. But like Lady Russell, the sort of older woman friend who Anne speaks to throughout the movie, like I could just see the lipstick on her lips the whole time. It was like quite shiny and like glossy. And I just thought no one would have done this. Like this is just not. So yeah, I'm quite curious about this other film that apparently doesn't do that because as this woman I was speaking to said, like that's the first thing that people sort of clock onto, even if it's not conscious of something sort of looking incorrect historically is the makeup, which I think is completely true. Like we just know what looks current and what sort of doesn't, even if we don't know all the details about like what exactly people were wearing on their face in 1820 or whatever. Right. Yeah. I mean, there is definitely a whole bunch of historical movies that were made in the seventies, which look agonizingly seventies ish. The best one being The Great Gatsby, where they had Ralph Lauren outfit everyone in suits that were, like, so much closer to 1975 than 1925. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, classic Hollywood also did adaptations of all these Victorian things. Oh, yeah, well, everything is like a 50s silhouette with, like, and a 50s corset. <laughs> it's so funny. Or they just do everything as, like, a Civil War South-era gone with the wind type dress because that's the that's the shape that looked the most fashionable <laughs> well and it's like that's the past in quotes yeah. and like the austin adaptations they also do that oh it's my like, god that, i would die no. <laughs> no no oh yeah look at the stills from the Lawrence olivier and marilla braun pride and prejudice i've never actually seen that movie but um i looked up some stills while i was writing this article and i was like oh my god even her in that movie like her hair is sort of down and longer and different than all the other women because you know Elizabeth is the cool one. Nothing could be worse than a woman who takes pride in her appearance and does a bunch of fun stuff with her outfits. That's why Bright Star is so great, because it's like yes. one of her main hobbies is just making fucking weird outfits. So everyone else actually does look like an Austin character, and she's like, I'm ready for fashion week. Yep, exactly. So I think the two sort of topics we have left, which we haven't really discussed much, humorously, given that we're talking about a film, are the writing and direction. <laughs> So the director of this film is this guy, Adrian Shergold, who like I looked up on Wikipedia and I was like, I've never heard of anything this man has done. I mean, both the writer and the director are people who have very successful British TV careers, but not successful in the sense that they're doing A-list stuff. Yeah, like this guy may have done lots of stuff that's like very good and I just haven't seen it. I'm not trying to be like, he's an unknown it's just like he's not a name simon burke is the writer and he has done more stuff where like i haven't necessarily seen it but i'm like oh that kind of like i've barely heard of that or like lots of adaptations of books which makes sense given that he did this adaptation including tom jones and white teeth two very different novels he also wrote on fortitude which I know that you Yeah, big enjoyed. fan of Fortitude. If you like stuff that's completely absurd and is set at the North Pole, this TV show is the pinnacle. Yeah, but I think there are kind of interesting choices made on both sides, some of which work and some of which don't. The direction is quite different from most films of this type. 
as you were saying to me earlier, it is very ITV. Like, you can tell it's a TV movie, which is fine. But what I was thinking of watching it, you're going to laugh, but I swear to God, this is what came into my mind, was the Bourne films, which came out around this era. <laughs> is that because the camera was sort of jogging around? There was a lot of handheld camera in this movie, and that was just so in vogue. And so they clearly want to make the film feel accessible and not like this sort of austere period thing, which I think is interesting. I think sometimes it works really well. There are a ton of really close close-ups on people's faces in the movie. And sometimes I think that works. And sometimes it just feels quite awkward. Like you're like, why are we just like awkwardly moving from one close-up to another? Like the very first scene is shot very awkwardly. And I was like, oh no, like, did I misremember this? And is this actually terrible? But the thing that works really well, I think, is that you have Sally Hawkins often, like when she's doing her little diary, she'll sort of look directly at the camera. And her gaze is so arresting that that really brings you into the movie. And then obviously the other stuff is the adaptation. So I have thoughts about how this was adapted, but I guess before we do that, again, I'm curious as someone, for someone who like hasn't read the book, if there was anything that stuck out to you as particularly either like clunky or awkward or that worked really well. You already mentioned those Wentworth scenes as being like a bit odd. <laughs> I mean, there's actually someone we haven't mentioned at all yet who I feel has been very hard done by in our review, which is Tobias Menzies. <laughs> which is shocking. Just because he's honestly, one of my very favorites. He and Anthony Head have both been in about 400,000 of these movies and TV shows. Tobias Menzies is one of our nation's delights. He has played so many horrible posh men. <laughs> He occasionally plays nice and delightful, vulnerable posh men, but he plays a lot of shitheads. And in this, he is, you know, he's a fuckboy douchebag. He is there to seduce Anne at the last moment. And he really doesn't have very much screen time, but he is great as always. And considering the fact this movie is like an hour and a half long, I think it was very well paced because like the first section really immerses you in Anne's perspective. And then after that, they can really pile in all of these characters. And there is like several things that just happen off screen because you don't need to show them, which is not something that happens a lot in a lot of like modern movies. They want to show everything. But yeah, like he basically is the love rival and like the kind of the final act of this movie is this will she, won't she situation where Tobias Menzies' character, who is a distant cousin of hers, who's shown up, like there's this whole situation with like the inheritance of their you know family home and riches and so forth and like the girls can't inherit so he's going to inherit and if she marries him then that means she'll be able to still live in her childhood home and it seems like it's a pretty good prospect but also like by this point Wentworth is still single so like will she marry him so there's this love triangle which functionally only exists for like half an hour of a 90 minute movie but I I think it did work. Yeah I mean I think that they probably could have added 15 minutes and gotten a bit more out of that yeah. because that's something that they've compressed a lot from the book. I, I also think that it's like also something that's always really striking about this type of story is the end so abruptly. Yes. <laughs> and like, so she has a like friend who's in Bath, which is where they go to. And this friend is from her school days and in the book, she finds out that she's become a widow and is in real financial distress because her husband was spending profligately. And that this cousin of hers was involved in that and is now sort of controls her 
estate and is basically just being a real shithead. And there is a really long scene where this friend kind of explains all this, but it's really well written and it's interesting. And it would be hard to dramatize because it is a lot of exposition, but the way Austin writes it, it's very gripping. And basically the way that they do that in this movie is that the friend just like appears out of nowhere, like on the street and is like, Anne, I have something to tell you. She's also like running through the street. Which I didn't think about until later, but it's like, she is an invalid in the first scene. And now she's like, I'm better and I'm here to deliver exposition. It's very urgent. (laughs) So like, that was the, one of the only scenes that really, I was like, this, this needed to be better. But I think that Tobias Menzies is just so good that like, you just get such a sense of that guy immediately. And he's so fun. I mean, I think he should have played Wentworth in this movie, personally. I don't think anyone was casting him as a nice person in 2007, but it's not like he can't do it. He's perfectly capable. It's just that he got typecast as assholes for, like, most of his career, which is quite funny, because when you watch interviews with him, he just seems like a quite soft-spoken, nice, kind of shy, awkward man. And it's like, what happened? Like, what's going on? (laughs) Basically, I think it should have just been, like, a bit longer and... I would have cut the Wentworth scenes and added a bit more of the Menzies character. But the thing that stood out to me that I am, I must say to the public at, you know, the end of our podcast, really the best place to like impart information is that the structure of this movie bears such a close resemblance to the structure of the new persuasion. It cannot possibly be accidental. Like they 1000% got the screenplay for this slash watched it several times. And we're like, well, we, we're just going to do this. It was a rush job. And I would love to know what the behind the scenes process was. So because basically you're saying it's closer to this movie than it is to the book. Yes. So they're obviously very different in terms of like tone, right? Like the biggest problem with the new persuasion is not actually how they deal with the plot. It's that like just everything about the tone and characterization is wrong, right? It stays fairly close to the book, except that the stuff with the Tobias Menzies slash Henry Golden character has changed pretty dramatically. But like, things like when they're on their walk in the woods, like Anne twists her ankle doesn't happen in the book. She just sort of gets tired and Wentworth like intuits that she's tired and that she should go in the carriage, which is better because he just understands her so deeply that he knows that she has to, you know, but it's more external to have her twist her ankle, right? So they made that change in the 2007 version. It is preserved in the 2022 version. What else? A lot of the changes to do with the cousin character at the end are very, very similar. There was another like very concrete thing to do with her sort of not receiving the news about his engagement that they preserved in the 2022 version, although then they extended that to the very end. But like, not producing enough examples now, but, like, I was watching this last night. I was just like, this is fully insane. Like, what the fuck is going on? And obviously no one would have seen this movie. Like, this is not a widely seen thing in America because it's not very accessible. And, like, if you're going to watch one, you're probably going to watch the 1995 version. And it was to the point where I was like, did they even read the book? Like, or did they just <laughs> watch this movie a bunch? Like, and some choices that, like, I think we're not the smartest from this film, like really downsizing this stuff with this widowed friend, which gets totally cut from the new one. They then again, like keep those changes. Oh, one of the other ones was that there's a dinner party where Anne is going to see Wentworth again for the first time. And in the book, she's quite keen to 
not see him because she's just so nervous about it and like ashamed of the situation. And in both movies, she does want to go and is sort of like trying on dresses. And then the fact that um, her nephew gets hurt, she's sort of forced to stay with him. And it's like subtle things like that, but it like... So that's my conspiracy theory for you this week. Uh, I just had to share. But if you're going to watch one, you should watch this one because it's a superior version of basically the same plot. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Patreon subscriber Daniel for requesting this movie. Yeah, so much fun to revisit. And the sort of excuse that I had to reread Persuasion, that was very welcome. And if you are someone who prefers audiobooks, which I normally do not, those Juliet Stevenson ones are just so sublime. As we were sort of alluding to in this episode and last week's episode, we are going to be doing a big Pride and Prejudice season. We'll have multiple episodes on Pride and Prejudice in early fall, I think. So get ready for that. But next week, we will be doing a tribute to the late, great James Kahn, who died a week or two ago, who is an actor that I really love. Although I haven't seen like a ton of his movies. He's just so indelible in everything that he did. And we will be talking about Michael Mann's first film, Thief, in which he stars. Which is great. And I was like, well, after I watched it, I could have looked up and was like, this was Michael Mann's first movie? Insane. Great. <laughs> just insane. I have watched that movie twice this year because I rewatched it for the podcast and I just, I love it so much. I think it's incredible. Yeah. It's a heist movie, but it's a gritty kind of heist movie. And crucially, if you like films that have a lot of technical detail and gadgets and machines, you will love this. Also, if you like Drive. Because yeah, it let is me drive. tell you, it is literally drive. Drive is just copied. Not in a bad way, but truly watching this, I was like, oh. I was like, this is fucking drive. Yeah. <laughs> Including the music. <laughs> yes. One of the most just like beautiful movies I've ever seen. Also, like, the cinematography is so amazing. Um, and Khan is sublime in it. That will be next week. We will also soon have a bonus episode up for Patreon subscribers with a summer listener mailbag episode. So we've already gotten some great questions from you guys i think by the time this goes up there will still be time to ask questions so you can head over to patreon and check that out if you would like to ask us something uh we always have a lot of fun doing those episodes so that should be good and we've gotten a a real real banger of a question already that we're already thinking about so um that'll be a good time our patreon is at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast and of course if you want to request an episode like this episode you can also do that there uh, we also appreciate five-star ratings and reviews. They're just really, really helpful for the podcast. So you can do that at Apple Podcasts or whatever other podcast service you use. And finally, Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot. You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor and at Letterboxd at hello Taylor. And you can find my work at Bustle, where you should be able to read an article I wrote about the hair in the new persuasion. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.